Thank you so much, Trey. Thanks for being here after uh, teaching children to play brass instruments all day long. And we are, we are so blessed with talent. I lost track. I tried one Sunday morning to keep track of how many percussion instruments he played in a Sunday morning service and actually did lose track. Uh, did, you, did you track that number? Your seven or eight just in that one service. Thank you so much. And for those who are in the room, it's so good to see you. It's so much easier to teach, to preach, to talk, to dialogue, you know, when, when there are breathing bodies in the room. Uh, thank you for joining us. For those who are watching online, we are dreaming about the possibility, planning about the possibility that when the fall rolls around, we'll be able to gather downstairs the way we used to and eat those wonderful meals and pray together and just enjoy each other's company. It just, it seems so long, but please stay safe, um, be comfortable, we will finally get there. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the chance to just stop for a moment and breathe, to stop for just a moment and reflect, to slow down, and so speak to us. Uh, give us ears to hear. We're not sure what it means when we say, change us and make us more like you, but for the moment, that's what we're saying. So give us the courage to follow that path as well. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the author of this study, Charles Qualls, begins this section tonight with what he calls a cautionary parable. And I would like to share part of that with you. There once was a man who had been coddled as a child. His home was a wealthy one. Any problem he created was quickly solved by his parents. There was no mess too large for their ability to, to clean up or no corner they were unwilling to cut so that they could see their boy happy. This way of living was reinforced within him. As he grew up, he expected not to worry about how much effort or integrity was required in life. Instead, he was, his only expectation was that things should work out in his favor. Over time, he found himself less and less a part of the world around him. Having seen much and possessed of almost everything, he began to feel cut off from the people around him. No matter, for he continued to run over whomever he must to gain the desires of his heart. Besides, he thought, they were inferior to him anyway. If he could want something, anything, how bad could that thing be? So his pursuits continued. Later in life, his parents were gone. Almost gone were the friends, neighbors, and colleagues whom his parents had leaned on. He was affluent, but he was also surrounded by those who would benefit from what they could steal from him, and he was devoid of true allies. More and more of his time went into keeping what he had. He did not notice his own decline in health. No one was there to point out where he was vulnerable from his excesses. He didn't know his blind spots. And one by one, those who would take advantage of him learned ways in which they could do so. He did not notice when some of what he had owned began to be depleted. He didn't realize how closely his detractors had moved into his life. In small parts, his world shrank. And by the time he was old, this once strong, wealthy individual was broken and timid. Asked to describe what had happened to him, one observed, his folks taught him every trick in existence except the ability to stay out of his own way. He eventually devoured himself. 
And he really focuses on that last line. He devoured himself. You'll recognize this from that video we watched the very first night, if you've been a part of this study, this cycle in Judges, which is another way of talking about people who possess this incredible land and a bright future. And we have this pattern of self-destruction, losing everything, not being aware of how it's slipping away, making many of these poor choices and devouring themselves. So before we begin the study, maybe it's a good time for us to ask if, if you could go back and choose again, which decisions would you make differently in your life? We can't, but have we learned from those mistakes? If you could go back, which decisions would you make differently? Last week, we looked at that incredible story of Ehud, the assassin, assassin, who takes King Eglon's life with the blade that disappears in the rather large individual. And then we have one verse that tells us about the next judge. So we have Othniel that we talked about, and then Ehud. And then the third judge, the third deliverer, only gets one verse in the book of Judges. After him, after Ehud, came Shamgar, son of Anath. Some translations just have Anat, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And if you're wondering what an ox goad is, it's just a pointed stick. It's six, eight feet long. Sometimes it'll even have an iron tip on it and it's got a point and you just use it to, to drive the oxen. He too delivered Israel. And that's, that's all he gets. And then the next verse, we're into the next passage, Deborah, that we're going to spend most of our time with tonight. But let's stop there for just a moment and talk about this passage. So when we go back the last week about Ehud, you'll remember this. We said God is not bound by eldest-ism. Uh, Othniel not being the oldest son but the youngest son God is not bound by ableism Ehud who is in some way restricted by his right arm but he is the one whom God has chosen and now we have Shamgar and maybe this is what's going on Shamgar or Shamgar it's not an it's not a Hebrew name it's not an Israelite name and, and the rest of the verse, the son of Anath or the son of Anat, Anath and Anat are the names uh, of a Canaanite deity. And it's not too adventuresome, even though we only have one verse, to speculate. I, I don't even think it's speculation. To come to the conclusion, uh, this person is not Hebrew. This person is not an Israelite. Uh, this person, it sounds like he's a Canaanite, which may be why he only gets one verse. And something happens in his life where he is now confronted by these Philistines. And the story is that he kills 600 of them. It's a bit of a Samson story. And, and he gets one verse. He's still described as the deliverer. He's still described as one of these judges. He's um, there's no mention about how many years this is going. He delivers Israel, which brings me to, if we were able to work this one into last week's, I would have added this one. God's not bound by ethnocentrism. Uh, he's an outsider. Does he even know 
he's getting credit for this? Does he even know as evidently a Canaanite that when he is now confronting another enemy that he has, God is now using him and his circumstances to deliver God's people, the people of Israel. Maybe that's why he only gets one verse. It happens. It brings peace to these people. It, it, it delivers them from one of their enemies. But the writer isn't going to give this outsider, this Canaanite, this foreigner too much credit. And then he's going to move on to the next story, which is the one we're going to. But uh, if, if God isn't bound by these things, I suspect we should not be bound by them either. And the great thing about being God is you get to do whatever you want to. Which brings us to Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Israelites again, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jobin of Canaan, who resigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hazor, uh, excuse me, Harosheth Hagoim. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly 20 years. They have once again declared independence from God or lapsed into independence from God and now are going to receive the consequences of those choices. 900 iron chariots, not just 900 chariots, 900 iron chariots. Think highly maneuverable military transport. Uh, they, they, they have tanks. I mean, this is, this, it isn't just 900 chariots. They're iron chariots. This is expensive. This is results in 20 years of, and it's not just 20 years. It's 20, it, cruelly 20 years. Oppress them. We've got an, we've got a modifier here. Cruelly. It, this is a tough 20 years on these people. When we read this from our perspective, and I know we continue to talk about this language and how we're going to interpret this and even interpret it in our lights, I am reminded of the passage in Galatians 6 that you reap what you sow, which is exactly what the book of Judges is giving to us. It, it is a true and a consistent biblical principle. One of the things you'll notice in the book of Judges as opposed to reading the prophets, so go back and read Amos or, or uh, Isaiah, they get very specific about the sins that the people are committing. And the writer of Judges just kind of gives you this blanket. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. Underneath it, there seems to be this idolatry, this uh, associating with the gods of the people that are always there. The writer of the book of Judges isn't interested in cataloging those sins. That's going to be left to the prophets later on. The writer of the book of Judges is going to give us the big picture of what's happening. But now we're going to come back. This next person is going to get far more than one verse. So Judges chapter Chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jobin. And, and another way of translating the word for sold, that Hebrew word, another way to translate it is surrendered them. Um, 
going back to they are going to reap what they sow. God is going to allow them in their vulnerability and in their distractedness and in their spiritual distance to be overtaken. And Jobin's primary tool of oppression is going to be this military leader, this commander, Sisera. And the people cry out again. Uh, Verse 3, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And it sounds like they really mean it. 20 years of oppression. It sounds like they finally come to their senses going going back to uh, where, yeah, there it is, going back to this cycle that we've had all along. It, it sounds like they, they finally get it again, and they, but there's a problem now. There's an army. Uh, there's another king that's in charge. There's a military commander with 900 chariots of iron. There's no quick fix to the problem that they find themselves in, even though it sounds like they are sincerely turning to God And God hears what they are saying, and it's just a reality check that long after we repent, our choices are still there. And those choices often have consequences. And we want to say, as the people of God, grace is very, very real, and sin is very, very painful. And so the writer of the book of Judges has set this up for us, and we move to the next section. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. And there's that same word some translations have, leading Israel. It's It's that word we've seen all along. She seems to be one of the few who actually not just militarily leads, but actually has people come to her and she helps them in making decisions. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. It's named after her now. It happens so often. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go. Take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. That is a big assignment when you do not have an internet. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jobin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give you and I will give him into your hand. Now this is spoken by, she is a judge, but she also has the title of prophet. She's speaking for God. We'll come back to her in a few moments. Barak or Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Hmm. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going, or some translation, the course you have chosen, the choice you have made, will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Well, let's talk about Deborah for just a few moments. So she represents this local regional leadership, as we've seen with some of these other judges, uh, closest to what we, the way we would use the word. Her name, Deborah, means bee. 
as in B-E-E, as in the critter that will sting you, which is an interesting thing. Uh, There's always this like, uh, how much is a given name and how much is a name that these people earn later on in their life that her words will sting? So keep that in mind. I'll come back to that B in just a moment. Um, The consonants of her word. Now, Hebrew, I I told you before, it's this weird um, Hebrew has all these consonants. You read right to left. Vowel points were added. So imagine if you were to take a book or a newspaper or, or even this, just pull out all the vowels and you're just going to have to put the words together with just the consonants. And actually you could do it. You know English well enough that you could piece it together. Every now and then you would come across a word that spells similar to another depending on the vowels, but you, you would be able to get it. So the same thing happens there. When you pull the vowels out of Deborah, the, her word, the name, it may either mean B, B-E-E, like an insect, or it may mean word, that is that which is spoken, or it may mean it's a combination of those two that um, this prophet, when she talks, um, she doesn't always say nice things. Like her words can cut, her words can sting. Even as we see her talking to Barak or Barak as she's talking to him and he goes, I'll go if you'll go with me. She goes, I'm going, but now you've made that choice and now it's going to change a little bit for you. She's also described as the wife of Lapidoth. Now the word for wife, whether it's in Hebrew and Greek, it also means woman. So it's always like this toss up. Are we talking about roles, uh, relationship? Are we talking about gender? Which one is it? So it could be wife of Lapidoth or it could be woman of Lapidoth, which brings in a whole nother possibility because the word Lapidoth means torches. So it could be describing her that way, this woman of Lapidoth may be a woman of torches or another way of translating that is fiery woman. So here's the question. When you read this description of her and we do know she's married. We do know, for example, when you get to the next chapter after the, after the battle and they're celebrating that there's, there's a phrase that's in there that describes her with her as a mother with her, with her children. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, woman of torches, or fiery woman. So here's the, here's, we don't know for sure which one of this is. Is this just a description of, let me identify for you who this judge is. She is the wife of Lapidoth from this area and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah. Or is it a title that she has won that has been given to her because she will lead the troops, this army, carrying a torch as they go out? Or is it going back to Deborah, who stings like a bee, uh, she is a fiery woman, (laughs) which explains why she is a judge to begin with. We don't know what is absolutely fascinating is in this incredibly male-dominated world. Here she is, and here are the incredible ways that God is using her. And so uh, another way of looking at that, here are just in this text, what we have, she has described the, the roles that she, she is a prophet, that is one who speaks for God. She is a judge, a deliverer, as we have already seen with some others. She is a military leader and she is a wife and a mother. 
Uh, she's a fiery woman any way you want to describe this. She is the first prophetess, the first female prophet that's mentioned in the Old Testament since Miriam and Moses. So Miriam is described that way if you go back to the time of Moses. So she's the first one who picks this up. So you've got this in the Old Testament, you've got this, this institution uh, that's controlled by men. And when God wants to break into this institution, when God wants to shake it up, when God wants to uh, rearrange it, prophecy is one of the ways, one of the regular ways God does that. And for example, we have Huldah, who is a prophetess in the Old Testament, uh, 2 Kings and, and 2 Chronicles. So now we have one more. Um, and then we've got Barak or Barak. His name means lightning. And I came across one translation that never calls them, uh, never calls her Deborah and never calls him Barak, but always refers to them as either B or lightning. And it just changes the whole story when you read it that way. So I encourage you to go back and read Judges chapter four. And every time there's Deborah, just substitute B or fiery woman. And, uh, and every time you see Barak or Barak, substitute lightning and some of the irony that you'll see there. So we've got this incredible, this incredible woman in such an ancient time who's carrying through fulfilling all of these roles when Israel is in such a critical time after, after suffering for all of these years. And, and one of the things I think we have to ask is what do we learn from her? We love to celebrate her life. We love to celebrate what God did through this individual. But what is it that we learn from it? And I think one of the things that, that I keep coming back to as I'm reading other people who are writing about her is, isn't just the idea that God has gifted her. That's true. And God gifts us and blesses us and but what do you do with that raw material? How do you hone it? And that is with Deborah, it's going to be stretched and tested. And isn't that what happens with us? Like we, we all like the idea of coming to church and worshiping. We all like the idea of being involved in a Bible study and a prayer group. We all like the idea of, in some of the language that we use, having a personal relationship with Christ. All of that is true. All of that is good. And that's not all there is to it. Because along with that is the mission that God calls us to, the giftedness that God gives us. And it's not just like here, here's your ability, now go and do that. It's like here, now work on it. Like here, now let's see you get stretched a little bit. Now, now let's, let's, let's put a little pressure on that and let's see what we can cook this into. Now, yeah, you're going to drop the ball. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall. Now you're going to get back up. You're going to do it again. So part of what we see in these leaders and in particular in Deborah is what happens when it doesn't always just feel easy? What happens when we are challenged? What happens when we are stretched? How are we going to respond? And then we've got lightning here, lightning in the story. Um, so this is what you're supposed to do, lightning. 
I want you to get 10,000 troops together and I want you to meet me at this point and well I'll do it but only if you'll go with me which sounds like a really big maybe and have you ever said maybe to God who, who have, how many of us haven't said maybe to God how many of us haven't at some time bargained with God yeah how's that worked out for us yeah but here's this some yeah I'll do it but only if you'll go with me uh we'll we only say yes sometimes if we know there's a guaranteed success and that's not what this story is about that's not what faith is about um, that's not the lesson I think that we learned from Deborah and it's not the lesson we've learned even in our own lives when have you said maybe to God and it wasn't enough or when have you only said oh I'll only do it if I know it's going to work out and that's where's the adventure in that and and where's the faith and the trust in that uh, there's something bigger that's going on here um, well let's go to to the next part of the story uh, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and and he delivers 10,000 warriors went up behind him I don't know how we don't know how long it took to get that together there are no cell phones how long does it take to get 10,000 people together how do you logistically how do you get them there how do you get the food there how do you support them it, it's it's a big deal and Deborah went up with him now Heber the Kenite had separated this is like a little footnote here Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites that is the descendants of Hobab the father-in-law of Moses and encamped as far as and how about this big word Elon Bazananim and some translations put it's the tree the tree of Zananim which is near Kadesh when Sisera was told that Barak's son Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the Wadi Kadesh, uh, Kishon, excuse me, Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, I love that, <laughs> get up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoim. And the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. Hmm. We don't know exactly how this plays out. Um, it's bloody. We're talking uh, a lot of people a lot of lives we're talking real irony in the story they've been afraid of these 900 chariots of iron all along it starts off with that story now it's the third time at least that we've had 900 chariots of iron mentioned in the story and who knew how could this happen that these people would end up chasing the 900 chariots of iron instead of running from them. Who ever dreamed that the 900 chariots of iron would become vehicles of escape for them instead of vehicles that are chasing them and running them down? Which brings us to typically questions like this that we ask when teaching and preaching from stories like this, especially in the book of Judges, is when have you ever felt you were too weak for the situation that you were facing? 
That's, that's kind of typically what we do with a story like this. Or when has the church appeared to lack the resources or, or something that's vital, that's needed to fulfill God's calling and mission? And I, I, I still say it's a question worth considering. There, there's something here about these people. They have not been relying on God. Finally, they rely on God. We also have to ask the question, is this spiritualizing of the story a legitimate use of the biblical text? Is, is, it is still a story of war and violence. It is still a story of the people of Israel being oppressed. And we don't know how many of them have died. We don't know how many of their lives have been affected. And, and 10,000 of them have now gone up to war. We don't know how many, but we've got 900 chariots of, ar of army, uh, 900 chariots of iron with the military supporting all of that. And we've got this statement that they lose that day. The army of Sisera fell and no one was left. And even as we ask those spiritual questions, even as we read these stories and judges and go, what's, what's the faith behind this? What's the faith lesson behind this? We have to at least leave a bad taste in our mouths. Okay, we, we can't just gloss over the lives. We can't gloss over the pain and the loss and the mourning and the grief. If we do that too quickly with these stories, it's too easy to do that in life with our enemies. It's too easy to do that with those when we, we just can't, we, we have to still value people are made in the image of God. So what does that mean when we confront evil? Uh, what have we learned from Christ in how we confront evil? What does it mean when just war is placed before us? And I'm using that specifically in the way that's used within Christian philosophy and Christian theology. What happens when that comes our way? How, would, how do we respond to that? Um, and, and there's something here. Maybe another way of looking at it is... How long has it been since you allowed God to surprise you? I am. There's a faith element here. How, how do 10,000 warriors, I don't know how trained they are. I'm assuming most of them are farmers. How did they find the courage to go to battle against 900 iron chariots. You know, there, there's still something here. And, and, and Judges is clearly written. I mean, it's a different time. It's a different place. It's a different world. Absolutely. Um, and we've got to let them be their people in their world in, in the way they describe. But clearly part of the lesson here is this happens because God is involved. And, and uh, Barak, lightning is only willing to go if B goes with him, uh, if this fiery woman goes with him. And God is still behind this victory that they have. It's, it, it happened, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic. What, whatever that means, however God did that. And another part of that, yeah, don't pass up how many people have died. Don't let, don't just swipe that off the page. But at the same time, when's the last time you allowed God to really surprise you? There's this great story in Mark chapter six and in Mark's gospel, uh, in it's chapter six. It's the first time Jesus goes back home 
as an adult. It's a, since he started preaching, since his baptism, and, and he is now on this mission about the kingdom of God, the first time he goes home, and Mark describes it this way, Jesus could do no deed of power there because of their unbelief. That language is so strong, when Matthew gives us the same story, Matthew changes one word to Jesus would do no deed of power because of their unbelief. But Mark, who loves to shock us anyway, said Jesus could do no deed of power because of their unbelief. Which just to me brings it back home of, of what is it God would really like to do? in your life? What is it God would like to do in our life? Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because of who God is and God's love. God's love for us and God's love for the world, God's love for our community. What is it God would really like to do? And, and we're just not letting God do it because we won't say yes unless we know it's a guaranteed result. Uh, we say maybe or well, I'll only do it if someone else will do it. What's how would God really like to surprise us in our world if we just say yes? So Sisera leaves the iron chariots and he runs on foot to escape, humbled and afraid. And then uh, we pick up the story in verse 17 and then it gets, I'll just say, uh, shockingly vivid. Now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite, already introduced in the story. For there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. Uh, Come this way, come this way. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. She, so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent. And if anybody comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness and he died. <laughs> then as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there was Sisera lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. we meet another strong female character. I don't know quite what her nickname would be. Uh, there's this great character in the history of Israel who comes later on before the time of Jesus, uh, Judas Maccabeus. And Maccabeus means the hammer. They call him the hammer, Judas the hammer. I think they should call Jael the hammer. Oh my goodness, what 
a story. And clearly, there are political ties in the story. Her husband and the family have made, uh, they have some kind of relationship with King Jobin. But the writer also tells us there's also a relationship with Moses. And as far as Jael is concerned, blood is thicker than water. And she's going to go with the family connections that are taking place with the people of Israel. And she's willing to take matters into her own hands quite literally. He thinks he is safe because of the relationship, the politics that are involved, but clearly she is not. So one of the questions that comes up with this whole family and, and Heber and Jael and the Kenites uh, how does she know? How does she know what's going on? Does she sense God's hand on Israel? And she responds with insight and courage and, and violence. Um, with a deceptive welcome and a surprising hammer, she stops the oppressor of Israel. Uh, lightning does not strike. Barak does not get this one. He does not get credit for this. Uh, Jael does. And B is right after all. So the questions start coming out. Here, here are some of the ways Jael is described. Uh, some say she was attuned to the side and the cause of Israel because of the relationship that's there with the family and with Moses that Judges tells us about. She has some insight in what's going on and she is sympathetic towards them. Some say that she was just grounded enough in herself to root out evil and she recognized the oppression that Sisera and King Jobin had been hoisting on the people and she was willing to respond and, um, and to stop this kind of oppression that was being sustained. Some go a completely different route with her and say that her cleverness was just as evil and dangerous as Sisera's threat. Here's my question. Once I remove myself as this, I'm living on this side of the cross. I'm living in the modern world. I'm living in a world where we have such freedom. And, and even in our changing world, I feel so safe and secure where we live and what we experience and so distanced from this. We, we go see movies about this for entertainment. Okay. It's it just, yeah. So I'm going to, I want to distance myself. I want to say, what does this mean in the book of Judges? Let, let them be the people they are. Let them be the ancient people they are. Let them be the culture in which they are. Let them be responding to the incredible oppression and pain and, that they have, that they are experiencing. And I think at least we have to say this. God's ability, and maybe we should add and habit. God's ability and habit of using unexpected people to perform what is necessary, what is needed is shocking and striking. This isn't the only place we see this. My goodness, why would God choose Moses? Moses, who runs 
Moses who hides. Moses who, when God says, take off your shoes, you're on, you're on, you're on hallowed ground, you're on holy ground. By the way, I've chosen you. I want you to go and deliver my people. I want you to go and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he immediately starts listing off all the reasons why he is the wrong person. And I'm not really good at speaking, though he has this great speech that he gives to God. Uh, you really should choose someone else. Or why would God choose to jump forward in Scripture? Why would God choose the Apostle Paul, of all people, who is very obviously intelligent and, and very zealous, but going around and throwing people in prison? I mean, making their lives horrible, the people who are following Christ. That's, that's the one that God chooses to say, by the way, the people that you really don't like, the Gentiles, that's exactly where I'm going to send you. And, and he doesn't respond with a maybe, but he's willing. You can start going through scripture and the list, it just keeps popping up. Why in the world would God choose that person? And, and why would God choose you? Why in the world would God choose me? Why in the list just goes on? Maybe we shouldn't be shocked at all, but who is it that God really, when, when are we going to get past, I'm not good enough for this? I'm, I'm not gifted enough for this. I'm not confident enough in this. I'm not trained enough in this. When are we going to get past that to, wait a minute, if God is calling me to do this, then God thinks I can do this with God. Because it's not about me anyway. It's, it's about God. So what are we going to do? Who are we going to be? And those uh, resources, the gift, that talent, uh, when God wants to stretch it and hone it and, and compress it, do we have the courage and the faith to say yes and to just see where God wants to take us? So let's pray. Lord, it seems like it's been uh, a year of stretching and honing and challenging. and It's just been a tough year. Would you remind us of your grace? And would you remind us of your desire to surprise us when we've given up? given up on family, given up on someone special in our lives, given up on a dream, given up on parts of our community, given up on hopes for peace, prosperity, sharing the good news. Would you give us the courage to believe again in Christ's name? Amen. Thank you.